Medical Podcast number 420 for August 13th, 2014. Welcome back to another edition of the Macworld Podcast. I'm Serenity Caldwell, and I am thankfully joined by my longtime co-host now, Chris Green. <laughs> what? Wait a minute. I mean, was it, thankfully was it? Were they really so? Was Dan no, Frakes really Dan, so terrible? Dan Frakes is great, but you know how to do all of the back end post production of this podcast. And uh, oh, right, you had to do. <laughs> how did you? How did you like that? I actually, you know, it wasn't too bad. It was a. It was an extra couple hours of work that was right. really interesting to to learn how to do. But now that I have done it, I I am very thankful that uh, that I have you. To uh, to take care of some of those things, definitely- you know, anytime you want to take that over, you're welcome to it. I'm all about the equality thing. Oh yeah, well, you know, balance balancing the workload. Uh, if I have free hours in my day on Monday, I will I will let you know. Oh yeah, yeah, please, <laughs> free, please do free hours. That's yeah, a wonderful you know, I mean, concept. It would be so, this is so inside baseball. I, I understand, but it would just be awesome if we could have like. You know, four audio files and just drop them on a little applet somewhere and suddenly everything happens. But uh, as you now know, it's like a four or five step process to, you know, send it here, send it over there, do this. And yeah. And we're not even talking about the editing. Thank you, Jim. Oh, Metzendorf. no. And we don't You're even wonderful. do that. Yes. Most, <laughs> yeah. Jim Metzendorf does that and, and does a fabulous job. Every so often I still do it, but um, but most of the time he does it. He does a great job. He does. All right. We are so far inside baseball now. Yeah, let's talk about the news. All right. You had something, right? I did. Um, So over the weekend, uh, the New York Times, uh, in fact, our former former Macworld staffer, Brian Chen, uh, published a story about Apple's internal training program, which is called Apple University. And Apple University has been mentioned a a couple of places uh, in the past few years, most – most recently in Walter Isaacson's biography of Steve Jobs. Uh, But Brian Chen's piece goes very in-depth to the training program, including talking about various class titles, people who are teaching the various classes, uh, what what it means uh, to Apple as a whole. And I I found it a really fascinating piece, uh, especially having some limited experience with Apple's training programs myself when I worked for for retail. what he's describing sounds uh, not necessarily similar because a lot of the stuff that I was doing was online, but um, in the same vein of of the training that I was uh, privy to, and it's really it it really makes me excited that uh, that this is being sort of emphasized so heavily, reportedly. Yeah, I'd like to. S- I like that it kind of goes all the way from the top down, and it's it's very sort of through composed in that. They talk, at least according to this piece, about um, simplicity of design, um, being to the point, uh, taking situations where things could be complex and difficult. They say, no, 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 let's just strip all that stuff away and let's get to this elegance of design that we stand for, not only in our products, but also internally. I thought that was very impressive. I'm sure that there are other programs, Google, Facebook, and others also have their internal culture and they, they design their training around uh, some sort of um, theme. And, and I suppose that's what this is as well. But this has been so ingrained for so long. It is interesting to see Apple's employees being exposed to it. I don't think you have to go through this training necessarily. It sounded like some of it was voluntary. But... Um, but at least they give you this overview and say, you know, this is what we're about. And it isn't just we design pretty products in a factory somewhere, but rather this is a design ethic for us. And it, it's about everything that we do. 
Yeah, they're teaching the culture rather than just the engineering and the mechanics of it,、um, which is awesome because I think Apple's culture is actually one of their big exports that、uh, we don't really think about so much. You know, we think about the hardware, we think about the software. Um, but we don't really concentrate on well, what a, what is an Apple product actually doing for the world? What does an Apple product、uh, mean to somebody?、Uh, and it sounds like that is being really heavily emphasized in internally,、uh, which I I think is just awesome. Also, I love the fact that they're comparing Picasso to Apple mice in this、uh, in this article. <laughs> It's just delightful. And I think it also helps explain how people feel about Apple while they're there and also after they leave. That you, I can meet somebody who worked at Apple five or ten years ago, and yet they still have a real affection for the place、um, most of the time. And rather than it just being a job, you know, saying, "Oh yeah, I worked at Apple, and then I did this, and then I did this," there seems to be this sort of glow around it that、um, that the company has really gotten in, under their skin and into their blood more than just yeah, job. Yeah, it's an it's an experience. Working at Apple is an experience, and it's a shared experience for those、uh, for those of us who have ever worked there. It's a, oh, you worked at Apple. Well, you know, I,、uh, I, you know, you and I can converse in a way. You know what I mean? Yeah. Do you do you still feel that glow? I do a little bit. You know, I mean, I do think that that retail is a very different、uh, a very different environment than corporate,、um, but. At the same time, there was def- like retail, especially in the earlier years when I worked there, definitely attracted sort of a certain subset of people who were really passionate about the about the company, really passionate about the products.、Um, and I know, like in later years, there's been talk about it. Well, it's been kind of devolved into more or less a glorified sales job, but there's、mm-hmm. still, you know, there's still the magic to it that there are people who truly love the product and the company and are there. Not just to make a little bit of money, but there to evangelize the product and the experience and why it changes people's lives. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I remember the Apple stores opening up. I was living in Menlo Park at the time, and the Palo Alto Apple Store was going to open up, and people were just dying to work there. You know, they they understood the difference between retail and and、uh, corporate work, but they still really wanted in to be part of it. And I think a lot of the time, I think the geniuses are still quite good at, at Apple stores. But,、um, but even in those early days, you know, they were very selective about who they had working behind the genius bar.、And、I don't think there was much of a retail component involved at that point. It was just like, no, that's what you do.、Mm-hmm. Whereas I think some of the geniuses now do some retail.、Um, and I know of companies that have pinched. Some of the geniuses have kind of said, "Yeah, we think we want you," not only because they're smart people, but also because they've had that experience of going through Apple, and、um, and they have that kind of, they've demonstrated a sort of dedication to to a company and and work. So、um, that makes them an attractive property. Yes, definitely. I mean, I I think that you know、uh, my experience in in Apple retail. Prepped me incredibly for actually coming to work at MacWorld, not just because you know I knew the products well,、uh, but the ethos of well, we really want to help the customer find、mm-hmm. the scenario that's best for them, and we want to make sure that they know what they're doing and that they have fun with what they're doing.、Um, it, it that kind of stuff translates to a variety of different jobs and and work experiences. Yeah, absolutely.、Um, let's jump now to oh oh. The, the terrible thing over the weekend, Facebook Messenger. Oh, oh it was going to destroy our lives. It's it broken, gonna... my phone. 
<laughs> no, it's it, it really hasn't done much actually, except for the fact that every time I tap on a message, I have to switch to a different application, which is annoying. Um, yeah, but not the end of the world. <laughs> I mean, I don't particularly love Facebook. I have many, many problems with Facebook, and very irritated with them on a general basis. And in fact, if my derby population was not on Facebook, I would probably not use the service. But it's really not that much worse than anything else that they've been doing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as you know, and, and people listen to this podcast know, I'm not a Facebook fan. I got rid of it years and years ago, and I'm not, and I don't regret it at all. And so you would naturally think, I'm the, exactly the kind of guy who would jump on this Facebook messenger is the spawn of the devil wagon, but it's not so. Yes, it asks for permissions to do things, as do many other apps. Um, it's mostly Android users who are concerned about this because it, it wants to take a lot of um, – it, it needs a lot of permissions to do things. So it wants to be able to access your contacts. It wants to be able to access your location. It wants to be access your calendar and, and some other things. And some people who's, who are concerned about Facebook, as they, I think, rightly should be, have said, oh, well, they're going to do these horrible things. Facebook has since responded and said, you know – we, we really need these things for, this, for the convenience of the app. So, for example, if you want to get in touch with somebody, we want to have access to your contacts because that way you can send them a message. Or if there's something on your page, we need to be able to load information from the Internet, and therefore we need to do that without constantly badgering you and saying, can I look at this page? Can I look at this page? <laughs> How about this page? So there's very broad things. And then, then on iOS, we have much more control system-wide. So if you don't want this app to understand where you are, you just turn off location for it. If you don't want it to do something, it'll pop up a little alert. Say, can I have access to your contact? Nope. How about your microphone? No. It becomes a less valuable app for you because it can't do these things, but it isn't really Mark Zuckerberg looking through your dirty laundry to find out these terrible secrets about you. So, and, it, and the other thing is that I think I look through some reviews on the app store where people are saying, well, this has ruined my life because they're forcing me to use this app. Well, as I recall, Apple said, you know, if you want to listen to podcasts, you're going to have to get our podcast app because it's not going to work in the music app anymore. <laughs> These things happen. Sometimes companies decide it makes more sense for us to do this over two or three apps versus one app because we think it's a more immediate experience that way. So, okay. But because it's Facebook and because they do have a history of caring very little about privacy. People are naturally suspicious, but I think in this case, they've gone a little too far. Yeah. Um, every every justification um, that Facebook is making is more or less legitimate. I mean, they definitely have some sneaky reasons to have some of your or want access to some of your data. But for Messenger, by and large, what they're asking is what they're asking. And the beauty is the prompt is there so that you can say no to it. You don't have to let Facebook access your contacts, and you don't have to let Facebook access your location. Um, those are more or less optional for if you want. You know, Facebook wants to offer the same uh, the same stuff that uh, that Messages offers in terms of like it wants to be able to send text messages to your contacts. Um, so if you don't want that option, you don't necessarily have to have it. Um, that's not saying that you can you know ban everything that Facebook does for you, but it really is, I think, a, a level of degrees and, and gradations. Right. I think if people really have a problem with Facebook and privacy, there's one simple solution. <laughs> Don't use it. 
Imagine Simple. that. <laughs> Just stop using it. There are other ways to communicate with people. You don't have to use Facebook. I get it. It's very attractive. It's a great way of keeping in touch with your family and friends or your organizations, as you do with the with the Derby. Great, but you can also limit it. So, you know, if you're really freaking out about the fact that Facebook is looking into your stuff, just stop. You can disable your account. They don't make it easy to do, but you can do that. You can have them erase all the data that they've collected. Again, they don't make it easy to do, but it's possible to do it. So if you've got a problem, don't use it. If you're not willing to go that far, take what precautions you can. Look at your privacy settings and uh, try to have a good day. That's reasonable. Yeah, I try. Uh, okay, so what else did you send along today? Um, actually, the something interesting that Jean-Louis Gasset uh, posted uh, over the weekend as well uh, actually relates to something that Dan Frakes and I were talking about last week, which was um, we started talking about the Beats deal and about you know how those employees might get integrated. And then we kind of veered off onto a little bit of a tangent about the App Store and on how maybe maybe the Beats deal might influence the App Store and, you know, some of that curation we might see. Um, and lo and behold, um, Gessay is not necessarily saying, oh, the Beats team's going to curate the App Store. But they did write an, uh, a, an open letter to Tim Cook basically pleading for App Store curation uh, over this, the automated systems that the, that the App Store is currently implementing. And that's, again, that's not to say that there aren't um, specific uh, people behind the scenes building certain collections of apps. Uh, but by and large, the app store today is almost entirely regulated by machine, uh, where it's like, oh, there's the top grossing lists and all of that. Um, so I, I, I talked a fair amount with Dan Frakes about this, but it, it, I find it is interesting uh, that that this kind of popped up. And I'd love to hear sort of your thoughts on it as well. I think that Apple does have a level of curation in the editor's picks. I know that there's a group there of people that do that week in and week out. They go through the best apps, the best incoming apps, and they test them probably a little harder than they test kind of every app that comes in there. And then they, they write them up, and they don't do this because – you may have a big developer, Electronic Arts, for example, maybe releases something new. It's likely to get called out because it is a big company and they've put a ton of money into the thing. But they also look for stuff that's just really good. We, you know, both you and I have seen things uh, from developers we know and maybe developers we don't know pop up that you'd never heard of before and they're just awesome. And so they have this team of editors that looks for that kind of thing. But that said, I don't know how many apps they come in have coming in a week. But I can't imagine how big the team would have to be to get in there and curate everything. And um, Gasset's suggestion sounds great, but I think it would take an enormous amount of people power to make that happen. So that, one, you go through the existing stuff that's there, and you know there's a bunch of junk in there that really should just be cleared out. Um, but then to be on top of it and watch everything that comes in as well and say, yeah, yeah, this is really good and uh, not so much here. I think it's a little easier to do with music because you've got people that are trained in certain genres and certain subgenres that really know this stuff and can then say, of the existing body of work over the last 30 years, I can pick out the 30 best tracks in salsa or in New Orleans jazz or something. I think trying to do that with apps would be so much more difficult. So I think it's a good idea. I would love to see 
a greater level of curation. I just don't know how they tackle it. Yeah, I mean, it is a very big problem because there are, you know, a billion apps in the app store right now. Uh, I think one thing we were talking about last week was the idea of um, also introducing uh, personalized recommendations with the idea, knowing what you've downloaded and being able to map something that's like part algorithm, part personal curation lists. Again, kind of like what Beats does now for music, where, you know, when you first sign up for Beats, you have those, those you know, couple bubbles that you select, like, I like classic rock and indie music and stuff like that. And then as you, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down, uh, or I guess heart the music, you get slightly different uh pre-made playlists suggested to you. So I would love I it's a little again a little bit harder to do with apps than it is with music because obviously, you know, with music it's a 4-minute track and an app might be $20. Uh but still I would love the idea of oh, well, we'd see that you really like this developer and a bunch of other people who like this developer also like this developer and oh, you like calendar apps that do this kind of thing. You like apps that just have minimalistic styles. Here are some other apps with minimalistic. You know, like I'm not. I'm still not entirely sure how it works. You're right in that it's a very it's a very tough nut to crack. But I like I, I think there might be there might be a way to kind of borrow some of Beats's algorithms and and input it into the App Store. Yeah, I, I have to think that Apple is thinking about whether curation or something else. They have to understand that the App Store is pretty unmanageable at this point. I mean, I mean, I don't care who it is. If you've got a billion apps somewhere or a million apps or how many ever apps they have, how do you organize that stuff? And how do you make discovery possible? Algorithms make a lot of sense because again, you don't have to have a team of a thousand people looking at this stuff all the time. Um, but unlike music where you could say, oh, I kind of like this track. Oh, here's one very much like it. Oh, you like calendar apps? Yeah, here's one like it. I already have a calendar app. Thank you very much. So how does this help me? Oh, well, look, it has a contacts app. I have one of those too. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I get it with music. You know, it's like, oh, it's in 4.4. It's at 122 beats per minute. And it goes from major to minor in, from the verse to the bridge. Um, that I don't mind seeing duplication, but with apps, uh, not so much. Yeah, it's it's difficult. I don't know. I'm I'm hoping that, uh, I'm hoping that, Maybe even if it looks completely different, the uh, the folks in that area might have ideas, if nothing else. Yeah, and, and John Luis said, "I'll do it for free." <laughs> so I take him up on it. I say, mean, All right, Katie Cotton is gone now, so there's Katie no Cotton one to Kate. give evil eyes. Yeah, and we should say that's a quote from yes, from, from that John piece. <laughs> yeah, no, Katie Cotton has never given me the evil eye or anybody I know. But um, yeah, apparently he tried to pitch this to Tim Cook after. Um, uh, some conference, some event, yeah, some event, and uh, I think an all Katie things would, D conference. Yeah, right. And then Katie just kind of gave him the look, like you know, I know you used to work here, and I knew you used to be a big shot, but now you don't. So, uh. and so I, but he, you know, Tim apparently did listen. So maybe something will happen. But again, he said he'd do it for free. I would give him a little test lab, give him like four people, and say, all right. We're going to just you do this in a little sandbox environment. We're not releasing to this public. Let's see how you do. And then <laughs> two weeks later, when they emerge tearing their hair out, say, ah, not as easy as you anticipated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you really want to do this for free? All right. All right. Here it is. Here. Here's your chance. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Siri coming to the Mac OS, because this has been a rumor swirling around the last week or so. 
did you just do that? Uh, not intentionally. You said Siri, and then her, and then she <laughs> reacted. <laughs> Wait a minute. That doesn't. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Shh. Shh. Okay. Well, there is this technology, this voice control technology um, that is on iOS devices, and um, and apparently. According to some, it will be coming to macOS, even Yosemite, possibly. It's not in the um, in the public uh, preview, and um, and as far as I know, it's not in the developers build. So this is something that may happen. So the question is, what might it mean? How is the implementation implementation important versus mobile use? Is it just like going, show me a map of Boston, for example, to my computer, or can it possibly do something else? Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I've been wanting a version of Siri on my Mac since Siri came to my phone. So I'm I'm really excited about the possibility there. Um, as for how detailed it can be, I think it really depends on, first of all, um, much like the accidental Siri uh, triggering earlier in this podcast, uh, there, there needs to be either a shortcut or a good keyword um, for Siri to become active. Because if I'm just talking with, with my computer in the room and I happen to mention Siri's name and all of a sudden the computer goes, doot, doot, we're going to have probably, you know, a couple problems here and there. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, there's currently like the dictation shortcut. Um, you press a couple of keys and you get live dictation. If you could do something similar and trigger Siri um, or even perhaps building Siri into the updated spotlight in OS X Yosemite or the next version of OS X. Uh, where you like com- press command spacebar and you get this search box, but in addition you have the option to use your voice as opposed to using the keyboard. So you know there, I think there are ways to build that together. I would love to see it on my Mac. I would love to be able. There's most everything uh, that we you know use Siri for on the phone is is available or is going to be available with OS X Yosemite, including the Maps app and. You know, being able to be like, hey, Siri, uh, change my appointment to next Tuesday at 10 a.m., you know, as opposed to manually typing that out or, you know, call, call Ben. Would you like me to call Ben on your Mac or on your phone? You know, especially with continuity and handoff, there could be some really, really cool integration there. I think so, too. Where I am particularly intrigued is when I look at the differences between um, an iOS device and a Mac. The Mac has the ability for one application to talk to another, uh, much more so than does an iOS device, even though they're, they're trying to bring that to iOS. The other thing that a Mac will do that an iOS device will not do is automation. If Siri can be configured to be a trigger through Apple Script, through Automator, even through third parties, something like Keyboard Maestro, then it gets really interesting. If it all is always listening, as is the case with um, iOS 8, so that I can say my little keyword, it pops up and it starts listening, then I've got my Star Trek computer right here. <laughs> because from across the room, I can say the magic word, I can issue a command that I've got scripted or some kind of macro utility, and suddenly my computer starts doing all kinds of wonderful things beyond what it can do on an iOS device. I have to think Apple's thinking of this, that there, there is going to be a trigger option built into AppleScript or something 
deep down in the hardware where it's listening all the time and it will be able to carry out a series of steps based on a single voice command or a couple of voice commands. Um, Apple TV, it makes the same kind of sense where you can talk to your TV and it will suddenly do a bunch of different stuff. Um, and that's where I think the real power of this is going to be more than just simply mimicking what it can do on an iOS device, which would be terrific on its own, but then taking the unique power of the Mac OS and doing very cool things with it, um, simply by triggering it with, with your voice. Yeah. And they wouldn't even have to build in, you know, a whole super automation system because they have Apple script. They have integration with if this and that. There are there are lots of options for, for people. I just got really excited because I thought about the fact that, you know, my computer is in the same room as my bed. And the idea of waking up and still being in bed and being like, hey, uh, execute music wake up routine and then having my computer automatically load a certain set of music and then start playing things and open up a certain subset of programs and read me any new email it just it sounds futuristic it's the future is here <laughs> i think it is cuz i honestly a lot of this stuff you can carry out now just with a couple of keyboard clicks so if you wake up and just say good morning your mac is listening it goes oh okay i wake up i launch safari i load the following 17 tabs <laughs> i start playing music um and because you know we have home automation i'm going to talk through HomeKit, and i'm going to start your coffee pot mm. in the other room and at the same time <laughs> you know whatever you know turn up the heat there are so many elements of that were announced at wwdc that could you know that are now integrated or will soon be integrated and then to be able to trigger it all with just a, a voice command is so potentially powerful so it's magic um, it is magic and I, and so maybe this is the year of magic that um that all these various elements are now will exist this fall and that the that a simple voice command is then the key to unlock them all um so that's that's me saying oh wouldn't it be great this is my little wizard of oz moment, <laughs> but, uh, wouldn't it be lovely yeah the the one challenge there is just again figuring out how to configure the commands so that they don't execute randomly. Mm -hmm. Right. You have to have your little safe word with, with Siri and then uh, Siri listens and then bang off it goes. And, and you know, in your case, if you talk in your sleep, that can be a problem. <laughs> your knows? coffee pot suddenly goes berserk. Well, yeah, but think of it this way because now it's, it's, um, it's an excuse, you know? So if you send out an inappropriate tweet or something that you've, you made some terrible mistake and just say, I, I don't know how that happened. I think I said the wrong word. And oh, Siri, Siri did it. Siri, Siri ate my homework. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so that's this year's and then on into the future's excuse. Siri ate my homework. And um, and I think that's our show title, too. <laughs> I think so. Um, Gosh, well, why don't we talk... Um, we already talked a lot about ads last week, so I don't... I only want to mention the, the fact that Microsoft is, again, doing more Mac versus PC ads and passing. It's like, that's that's interesting. Good job, Microsoft. Stop comparing your own products. To <laughs> Particularly when they're not doing very well. Yeah. Well, it's just, it's so ridiculous. You know, personally, I've always had sort of a, an aversion to companies that directly contrast, um, you know, this is what thing A can do, but thing B. And like the Mac, you know, the, the switcher ads always kind of graded me a little bit. It, and they like, they just barely worked because it was 
PC in general, you know, it was, and they were very much played as, oh, this is funny, quirky sketch and not, we're comparing a specific computer and, and downplaying and, and insulting it. Uh, so that kind of marketing just, I, I hate it so much. I'm like, there's so many innovative ads that have been produced in the last 60, 70 years. Um, and so much creativity that has been done in the field of advertising you really want to go with a straight compare and contrast and, and drop yourself down to the lowest common denominator. Hey, your stuff sucks. Her, her, her. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it, I think it's just kind of typical of, of Microsoft, unfortunately. I, mean, I hope that they're going to develop and become a cooler company than they are, but they really aren't, you know, in terms of the Surface Pro, I think is, is an interesting design. So good, good on them for doing that. Um, that's and the stuff they're doing with Xbox is really interesting as well. But I still think they have this legacy of just kind of being, you know, the gawky, not very interesting company behemoth. And I think if they could do a little more to turn their advertising around, that that would reflect better on the company. And I have to think that that the new people there are thinking, okay, it really is time for a reboot. We need to change our image, and and hopefully, we start seeing that in the advertising as well. Yeah, I think they if they can strike a balance between, you know, the uh, contemporary modern art version of like the Surface Keyboard dance piece and old doddering, let's insult our competitors, they might yeah. just have something. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think we can close with this and, and mostly I'd, I'd want your take on it. Um, Brianna Wu did, a, I thought, an outstanding piece last week um, talking about women in the um, in the developer biz and it's it's something i think we all know that women are not well represented um and she was part of it she's speaking specifically about the kind of events that people have for developers conferences and other conferences where it's kind of the after hour drinking thing and um i've seen this stuff for years and years and years and seen women underrepresented but i'm a guy and so I can say, I don't want my daughter to, to grow up in this kind of environment, but I'm, I'm largely not affected by it. So I, I kind of like your take on it. I think you edited the piece and, and I want, just wanted to hear a little bit more from you about it. Yeah. So I was Brianna's editor. And when I first got the piece, I was very impressed um, just because it, it hit a nerve um, in a way that most of the women in tech pieces don't so much. I like, I, I think we we are fighting a battle, but I generally try and stay out of the discussion a lot just because um, I've been very fortunate in the community uh, in terms of I've been – I have not uh, run across some of the horrible things that other members of the community and the larger tech community have been forced to endure um, and maybe by saying that, I'll suddenly get like stalkers, and I really hope not. Don't stalk me. I'm really quite boring. Um, but you know, I at the same time, um, reading Brianna's piece was very much a reminder that like when I like I, I said this in the comments. Um, when I started at MacWorlds, I was 22 years old, and I had just moved across the country to San Francisco. Um, and a couple months later, it was my very first MacWorld Expo. And I was incredibly lucky that I had people on our staff who immediately were like, all right, I'm going to take you to every single one of the parties and you're going to meet every single person that you need to know in this community. And we're going to do this while you're surrounded by people that you trust 
um, and in spaces that you're comfortable. And once you get to know these people, now you have these connections and now you can kind of go out on your own um, and and meet those people in, say, a bar and not feel really, really horribly self-conscious that you're, you know, that something terrible is going to happen. Um, and I, like, I didn't really realize at the time how lucky I was, you know? I didn't, I didn't really make the connection when I was there because I had someone, you know, I had people being like, hey, meet these people. Let's all go out to a bar together um, and you'll have safe people to, you know, shepherd your way. Uh, but if I, you know, if I hadn't had those people, um, if it was just me alone at Macworld Expo, um, I probably would have gone back to my apartment as soon as like the convention, the like the day ended. Because I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have known where to go. And even if I'd known, like, oh, the party is at X, I would not have, I wouldn't have gone by myself because I just, you know, as a as a twenty two year old who doesn't know the city alone, um, I just wouldn't feel comfortable. And I'm, I'm a fairly, like, I consider myself a fairly self confident person. And you know, I'm, I have no problem going into a room full of strangers. But when it's a bar full of strangers, um, late at night in a place where i'm unfamiliar then my you know the fight or flight defense kicks in sure and it's those and everybody there could be the nicest people in the world it's just it just happens to be that specific scenario is is really scary for for women no absolutely and i i think to contrast you with brianna a little bit even though we're we're all in tech we're in publishing tech and that's different Mm, i think that very much so are far more represented in our publishing business. I know that most of my editors over my career have been women. And the balance when I was at Mac User, I think there were more women editors there than there were men. Um, Mac World now, not so much. But it, in the last, you know, several years before, we had a lot more women there. Um, and my wife used to work at, at Mac World and, and, so publishing, I think, is different. You see a lot more women in that business. In her case, in the developer community, you don't see a lot of women. We've seen that with App Camp for Girls, where women are kind of discouraged um, at a young age from participating because, you know, the guys are like, oh, you're a girl. You can't play with us and write code. And I, so having someone like Gene McDonald actually starting to, to uh, brew, I think, young girls and so that you know to help them along and say yeah you can do this and you should be doing this we need the input of women in in this business um but i certainly have read enough horror pieces from women developers who go into places where guys act like apes and they don't feel safe and they don't feel valued that um it's rough i you know i think it's part of as i again think about my daughter is starting to teach it early and starting to change these attitudes at a very young age so that they're not confronted by idiot teenage boys who who make them feel undervalued, um, even when they may do far better work than these apes. Mm. No, I'm I'm I think it's a it's a great movement and it's something that we really should it's not it's not necessarily that we have to go around banging the drum and be like we need women specific spaces and women you know women must be mentioned in everything because in my ideal world this never comes up in my ideal world it's not like the women dinner it's just hey let's have a dinner for people and women happen to show up uh but unfortunately until 
until we get to the point where we make more safe spaces for people universally to go and, and feel comfortable, um, people, you know, women have to be called out to a certain extent. Um, so I'm hoping that, you know, the stuff that Brianna is doing for the community is fantastic. The stuff that people like Jean McDonald and, and App Camp for Girls are doing is just phenomenal. Um, having those kind of role models in our community and having the people who are in not in power is the wrong word, but in in positions of authority saying, hey, you know what? Um, we do all throw all of our parties at 11 p.m. at night. Maybe we, you know, maybe we do a, a pre-mixer at 6 p.m. Mm-hmm. or something um, to, to make it a little more friendly. Or maybe maybe we do intentional like put groups together. Just ways ways to make the community at large feel more comfortable, I think, would be would be really awesome. You're right. And just having some basic understanding of how men versus women feel about certain things. There are places where guys feel perfectly comfortable, where a woman would not feel perfectly comfortable, that you could feel threatened by walking into a room full of guys that are drinking. Mm-hmm. Clearly. I mean, <laughs> this, this, this should be obvious. But, you know, I think a lot of men just are like, what? We well, don't have a problem with this. What's your problem? Yeah, because you're comfortable with a with an experience. You may not realize that what's fine for you may be totally skeevy and freaky for someone else. I'm glad that you used the word skeevy because I didn't know anybody <laughs> else did. But uh, it's yeah. it's one of my favorite words. It is a great word it and, great and very word. apropos for late night bar scenes that you don't know very many people at. <laughs> Absolutely. And if you haven't read the piece, um, we will certainly put it in the show notes, but you should. It's, it really is a, a wonderful piece. Great job editing it. And of course, Brianna, beautiful job writing it. I think um, a lot of attention came from that piece. Uh, I think she, there was a follow-up from the LA Times with her. And, um, and I see more people kind of devoting some serious attention to this issue. And I, and I hope that they continue to. Me as well. So uh, what do you call it? Done? I think we're done. Okay. We'll say it's done then. All right. Well, thank you. I guess I'll, I'll close since I opened. Is that how yeah, that works? Yeah, please do. All right. Well, thank you very much for listening, dear listeners. Um, and we'll be back next week. Yes, we will. We will be back next week. And then I'll be gone two weeks from now, hopefully on a beach in Ottawa. Fingers crossed. 